If you are a guest, welcome. Um, just so you know, generally what we do here is we go verse by verse, book by book through the Bible. Um, up through the beginning of the summer, uh, we were going through 1 Corinthians, uh, where we took a break during the summer to, from that. Uh, we will resume that September 10th. But in the summer, we've gone through a series called Ancient Paths, and the goal of this series has been to discern the practices and patterns our Lord Jesus did and expected his followers to do, and that's what today is about. Our, one of the things our Lord did was urge would-be disciples to count the cost before following him. And indeed, in many cases, he had a huge crowd following him, and with only a few hard truths, they all left. So that might happen today. Um, but if you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you do not own your own Bible, uh, please take this as our gift to you and read it. Um, and the rest, again, our passage is Luke 14, 25 through 33. And it is uh, it's a weighty saying. I'll give you a minute to turn there. And it will be on the screen for those of you who don't have one. All right. Let's read verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If any one comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is able to finish all who see it, I'm sorry, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There are some passages that get embroidered on pretty cloth and hung in a frame in a living room or entryway. This is not one of those. It's an emotionally difficult passage, and I expect many of us just skip right past it, and those that do read it will likely be offended. But the bottom line is if we follow Jesus, then we believe all scripture comes from him and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the disciple of Christ may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that is true of, and especially so, perhaps, for seemingly difficult passages like this one. So let's talk about where we're going before getting into the individual verses. I think there are two main messages from this passage. First, our Lord wants us to know there is a cost to following him. He wants us to recognize that truth. And just, just that basic truth, there is a cost to following Jesus. And second, our Lord urges careful and serious consideration of that cost before we call ourselves his disciple. Before, careful consideration before we call ourselves his disciple. And he did this because he wants to help a person finish well. I want to demonstrate those two truths first, and then we will look at some additional passages which describe what that cost is and then there will be some practical takeaways for different groups of people, um, depending on and what that might mean for each person this morning. Okay, let's look at the passage. Let's look at the context which we see from verse 25. Read with me. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Great crowds were following Jesus after Jesus, after Jesus when he gave this teaching. And this is one thing we see in Scripture again and again, that our master's priority was to make dedicated disciples, even if a few, rather than draw large crowds of the half-hearted. Multiple times he makes it clear that his priority was on retaining a handful who saw Jesus as the source of life, as their ultimate treasure. 
He was not interested in drawing massive crowds that saw Jesus as merely a means to a different goal. Likewise, today, he is not interested in drawing large crowds who are primarily seeking after him as a means to achieve something else or because they think by invoking his name it gives their agenda credibility. We know that numbers were not his primary concern, for he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only a few find it. A few Jesus is not a victim of circumstance. He is not reacting sadly to this. This is in accordance with his plan. He never once begged after a crowd that was mainly looking for food or miracles. Indeed, he never begged or pleaded for any to follow him. He said, follow me, here are the terms, and then people either followed him or they left. And it's the same today. That is what we see again and again and again in Scripture. So from the outset, let me ask you, does your view of Jesus, the sovereign God, King, Master, Judge of all creation, match this view? Does your view match what Scripture says about him? Scripture portrays a king who sets the terms on which you may approach him, repentance and faith. And, his com- and he commands all, all to repent and follow him. And in scripture, when some refuse and walk away, he lets them go. And in fact, says difficult things to disperse crowds. Do you recognize that? Or is your view of Jesus as a man desperate for attention? A weak man begging for affection and fame? No. In many passages, we see Jesus disperses a crowd with a hard truth, and if they leave, he lets them leave. For instance, in John 6, there is a crowd, and Jesus, knowing their heart, they were looking primarily for food because he'd just previously fed 5,000 people. He gave them an emotionally difficult teaching, and we see in John 6:60 it says, when many of his disciples heard that teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Then in verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Do you think Jesus was surprised by this? No. You see, he said these things intentionally, knowing many would depart. That's because his priority was never to be popular, but rather to make faithful disciples out of wretched, repeating, repenting sinners. And when a a crowd gathered together, he would present them with a difficult truth to weed out thrill seekers, the fair weather fans, the ones who see him as a means to an end, but not the end itself, not the treasure itself. So that's the context. Next, let's look at the particular phrase he uses twice in this passage. The first time in verse 28 and the second time in verse 31. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Or what king, this is verse 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? In both of these examples, when does the person count the cost? First. They are to count the cost first. Before the person begins their endeavor, he demonstrates that the wise thing to do is count the cost. Remember the context? Great crowds, they're following. He there in turns and gives them this hard saying. It's as if he's saying, look, before you follow me, before you call yourself my disciple, you need to know what you are getting into. And he tells them this at the outset, knowing it is likely that many will leave. Why do you think he wanted the crowd who was following him to count that cost at the outset? We see in verses 29 and 30. (laughs) Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You see, Jesus wants his disciples to finish well. To the people of Jesus' day, this would have hit harder because honor was a much bigger deal than it is today. To begin such a huge undertaking and then not finish would have been devastating in terms of time and effort. 
and material wasted, but also in terms of mental cost and reputation in the eyes of the community. And Jesus is appealing to the wisdom of before beginning on a great undertaking to count the cost. And he's doing this in order to help us lay a foundation for finishing. Okay, we've danced around what the cost is. I think we see it primarily in verses 26, 27, 33. So what is this cost he's urging us to consider? Please read with me. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. By this point, we see our Lord state unambiguously that there is a cost. Furthermore, we see our Lord urge us to count it first. But it is in this passage we begin to glimpse what that cost is. Jesus uses extreme language here. He does. It should be read alongside Matthew 10, 37, where Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Therefore, hate here should indicate to us a lesser love, but we can't just stop at that explanation. We must consider why Jesus used strong and extreme language. He wanted his words to be heard here. This is language designed to express a point so strongly that it would seem offensive, that it would wake us from a stupor. It's the kind of language that you'd use if your child was walking blindly into the road and you shout, get out of the road. You're not worried about their feelings at that point. You're worried about saving their life. Why use such extreme language? Um, because I think in one way, all of these Jews that he was speaking to that were in the crowd were in a type of stupor, a fog of excitement. Each of them that very day would have recited what is called the Shema, which is a prayer of the Jewish people, which says in part, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Many had probably said it multiple times that very day. But the thing is, when you repeat something or you hear something over and over again, it can become familiar and you can become immune to the depth of what is being expressed. And that happens often in church too. It happens often with scripture. I think that's why Jesus uses this extreme language here to wake everyone up and say this, you don't really know what you're asking. You're chasing excitement, you're chasing food, you're chasing feelings, but if you wanna follow me, I require that your love for God be so great and so extreme that your next closest loves look like hatred by comparison. And I'm gonna repeat that. I think why Jesus used strong language is he's saying, I require that your love for God be so great and so extreme that your next closest loves look like hatred by comparison. And I think that stopped many in their tracks. I think it was designed to show would-be disciples that they don't have a clue what that kind of love looks like. And I don't think we do either. The world, likewise, doesn't help matters. It twists the word love to sinful purposes. Let me give you an example. In the ancient world, if you became a Christian, and even in the modern today in certain parts, you might be disowned by your family. They would say, you are no longer a part of our family. And sometimes they'd try to persuade you to renounce your faith. And they would say things, your mother or child might come up to you and say things like, why are you hurting me like this? Do you hate me? If you loved me, you would give up on this Jesus nonsense. That happens in part of the world today. It doesn't happen as much in the West, but something close that is happening. What if your 12-year-old child decides they're a different sex because social media or their friends have said that in order to be good, righteous, and exciting in this world, you must identify as some part of the LGBTQ plus revolution? You see, the revolution won't be satisfied if you remain silent. What they will demand of you is that if you, if you do not in your heart of hearts believe what they are doing is not sinful, they will condemn you and attempt to destroy you. They demand that you call good that which, God has called, that which God has called evil. And if you don't say it is good, if you don't say it is something to take pride in, 
then they will say the same thing as the family that disowned you for coming to Christ. That child will say, why are you hurting me like this? Do you hate me? If you loved me, you would celebrate what I'm doing and give up this Jesus nonsense. You see, apart from the truths of Scripture, none of us have a clue what real love really looks like. It's God's word. He defines it. The world, grasping for its own definition of love, has said it must mean unconditional affirmation of a person, even if that person is an unrepentant sin or self-destructive practices, as if the most loving thing to a heroin addict would be to say, good job, don't change a thing about you. What you're doing is stunning and brave. This idea is ludicrous, unbiblical and dangerous. Such thinking, is not based on the, such thinking is based upon the presumption that we can intuitively know what love is and what it is not. And scripture rejects that we have this ability in and of ourselves. For we read in Romans 7, 7, Paul says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. Recognize that not coveting your neighbor's possession is part of how you love your neighbor well. And what Paul is saying is that he would not have known how to rightly love his neighbor apart from the law because he did not intuitively think coveting was a sin. This is our problem as well. Apart from Scripture, we do not intuitively know what sin is. And therefore, we do not intuitively know when by our sin... We are failing to love God rightly and failing to love our neighbor rightly. Scripture, by contrast to the world's definition, says this, if you love me, you will keep my commands, John 14, 15. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 2 through 3. And I believe what these types of passages indicate to us is that if you desire to know how to love God or your neighbor well, then look to Scripture because you do not know intuitively how to do either. None of us do in and of our own power. And that may seem like a detour, um, but I'm going through these passages for a reason. So, so here's the reason. So first establish that Jesus has said there is a cost to following him. Second, he has said that we should consider it seriously at the outset Third, it seems like part of the cost is that we should love God to such an extreme degree that our next greatest love looks like hatred by comparison. So at this part of our reasoning, we are left with this question, how do I love God like that? Besides obeying his commands, how do I love God like that? If that is the cost, if the cost is that I must love God to that degree, what does that mean? So that's what I want to spend some time on. I want to unpack what that degree of love looks like so we can understand the cost Jesus is referring to. So keep your finger in your main passage, uh, but turn with me to Luke 9, 57 through 62 to see what I believe is further explanation by our Lord of what that cost is. Hi, everyone there who wants to be. And we'll start in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is another one that doesn't get embroidered that often. What is the cost of following Jesus? All three of these men indicated an initial desire to follow Jesus, and Jesus gives each of them a hard saying, I think designed to help them recognize there is a cost to calling yourself a disciple and he's urging them consider it now at the outset. But what types of costs are in view? Let's look at the first man. Jesus didn't even call him. He approached Jesus and the man said, I will follow you. 
Pause with me for just a second before getting into this reasoning. It, it baffles the mind. If someone came to you and said, I want to follow Jesus, is this how you would react? And if not, then you must examine if you have the same view of evangelism as Jesus. Some have said you win someone, what you win someone with is what you win them to. So there are many out there only preaching half the truth. Some just preach fire insurance. They preach, repeat this prayer after me and you won't go to hell when you die. There's nothing in there about Jesus as desirable or the one who truly satisfies. There's nothing about obeying him because he proclaims to be you, your king. There is nothing about repentance. And the problem here is eventually when someone says to that person, if you claim to be a Christian, then you'll try to stop living in unrepentant sin. Then that person will say, nope, that's a lie. A Christian told me 20 years ago that if I repeated after him, that was all I needed. How unloving of you to suggest that God wants me to change anything about my life. That's a tragedy, but that's a different sermon. So let's return to the passage. This first man says to Jesus, I will follow you. From the companion accounts, it would suggest that this man is a scribe. And if that's the case, then Jesus's answer, I believe, gets at the heart of what was likely this man's idol. The scribe was a privileged member of Jewish society, a religious man. They would have been well off and well respected and lived lives of relative comfort. And I think what Jesus is doing here is saying, look, I know who you are. You are used to certain comforts. You are used to consuming. You won't get that if you choose to follow me. You will suffer inconvenience and discomfort. And the religious man turned away when faced with inconvenience and discomfort. Doesn't that statement describe much of the American church? It says, I'll follow Jesus, but only if it's convenient. I'll follow Jesus, but only if it is at these days that are convenient and these times that are convenient. Only if it doesn't force me outside of my comfort zone. Only if the chairs are comfortable and the AC works well. I'll follow Jesus, but only if it doesn't get in the way of my hobby. Only if you run your children's program in a certain way. I'll go only go to Bible study if it's absolutely convenient for me to do so. I'll only share the gospel if all the conditions are right. I'll only attend corporate gathering if the pastor doesn't offend me. If no one is awkward around me. If just the right number of people greeted me in just the right way. If only, I'll only attend corporate gathering if people serve me more than I'm asked to serve them. Beloved, our Lord and Master points out, points us to this, this comfortable religious man. If you want to follow me, it will be uncomfortable. It will be inconvenient. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Don't tell anyone. Everyone in this room is a sinner. The man speaking to you is the worst. If you take a lot of sinners, a lot of people being sanctified from selfishness and pride and anger and lust and put them in close proximity to one another, guess what will happen? Hurt feelings, discomfort, disappointment. God called for himself sinners. He called for himself not those who thought themselves righteous, but admitted sinners. He called for himself the foolish of the world in order to shame the wise and the weak of the world in order to shame the strong. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. We're in exile, for goodness sake. In, is Christ's kingdom advancing? Yes. But our conquering king has not come back yet and there is work to do. And it will be uncomfortable because you are to do it alongside other sinners who are being sanctified just like you, just like me. If you have a wartime mentality, you don't care if the person in the trench next to you shares your hobbies or your background. You're just thankful that they're standing next to you as opposed to across from you. We need to adopt a wartime mentality. Let's look at the second man and the second cost. To another, he said, follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I've heard two different thoughts in my research on this. The first is that let me go, let me first go and bury my father was a common figure of speech, meaning let me wait until I receive my inheritance. And so if this is the case, then the man is saying, let me wait until the time is right, and then I will come after you. And the second thought I've heard on this passage is that it was culturally important to take care of this matter of burying his father. In which case, the man's objection is this, let me do what my culture and my honor demand. I have a familial duty to care for, and once that's over, then, then I'll follow you. In either case, Jesus' response is the same. He's saying, stop worrying about mundane things like your inheritance or what your culture or honor say are important. Follow me. Following me and proclaiming the gospel are far more important. The cost to be given here is recognizing that worldly matters are secondary to following after and obeying Jesus. Please stop waiting for the, the quote, right time. I spoke with someone a couple of weeks ago who has said he would just like a little bit more evidence. That attitude will kill that man. There will never be a perfect time to follow after Christ besides right now. Let's look at the last man. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that's hard. I think this illustrates the cost of discipleship perhaps more than anything else we've talked about thus far. Because this seems like a reasonable request. And that's what makes this so hard. He's not saying, let me wait for my father to die. He's just saying, let me say goodbye and then I'll come after you. And what is Jesus' response? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What was the problem? Was the problem that this man wanted to say goodbye? I don't think so. I think the problem was that the man put a condition on his following of Jesus. What did the man say in verse 61? He says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. He put a condition on his following of Jesus. He said, I'll do it if you'll just blank. And no one can come to Jesus that way. The mistake this man made was believing he was, his coming to Jesus was more of an equal partnership where he had a right to make some demands, where he could request some conditions and then Jesus as his potential business partner would request some conditions and then they'd meet somewhere in the middle. Hear me, you cannot come to Jesus that way. Jesus is not your business partner. Jesus is the master and I am the slave. Jesus is the king and I am the servant. Jesus leads and I follow. You come to Jesus on his terms alone or you don't come at all. Please recognize that the man's conditions were seemingly good conditions. Just let me say goodbye to my family. It doesn't matter. The good intentions of the conditions do not matter. That's why he said you cannot serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. It might not seem that way at first, but eventually that will be how it plays out. Jesus will not abide by divided loyalties. Even if that other loyalty is to yourself, your preferences, your conditions, however, however reasonable they may seem to you. You come to Jesus on his conditions, on his terms, recognizing he is master and you are not or you don't come at all, regardless of what you call yourself, regardless of if you label yourself a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if your conditions seem reasonable to you. Some say, just give me a little more evidence than I'll believe. Or some say, just stop calling my pet sin sinful, then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no. That was the cost that Jesus was pointing out to this man. 
If you come to Jesus, you come unconditionally. There is nothing he cannot ask of you and you have no rights to assert against him. You come to Jesus as a slave coming to a master, a servant to a king, or you don't come to Jesus. And that, that is, I think, at its most fundamental level, the cost of discipleship. You don't come with conditions. You recognize that he is master and you are not, and therefore he can ask anything of you. These other things help illustrate the cost, but I think this shows it at its most fundamental level. Now, will you do these things perfectly? No. You won't love him perfectly. You won't believe him perfectly. You won't obey him perfectly. You won't follow him perfectly. But here's the difference. When you fail, you don't say, hey, I have rights. This was supposed to be a partnership. No, you say, help me, Father. Help me to obey you better. I don't feel like I'm treasuring you rightly. Would you help me, Father? Make me love you more. I believe, but help my unbelief. And then you get up and you dust yourself off and you keep following after Jesus. Okay, we've talked about the main points from Luke 14. There is a cost and Jesus urges us to consider it first. We've talked through Luke 9 to try to flesh out what that cost is. I told you keep your finger in our main passage. So I want to turn back there and look again and read verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I think we had to walk through the Luke 9 passage in order to rightly understand this verse, Luke 14, 27. Because you have no rights or conditions, you have no ground to refuse God. Therefore, when he asks you to put something from your old life to death, you do it. Some of you may never have heard the phrase, bear his own cross. But you see, in, Roman, in the Roman world, the cross was an instrument of execution. That's it. It wasn't something you wore on your neck or put on your wall. It was just an instrument of execution. To take it up meant something was about to die. And here's what I believe we're being told. You must be willing to put to death pieces of your life if you desire to follow Christ. Some of them may be obviously sinful. Some may be respectable sins. Some of them may be on their face good things like culture or comfort or peace or being a father or mother or sister or brother. But bottom line is you must let nothing surpass your love for God and you must let nothing supplant your fundamental identity as a disciple and slave of Christ. And if something threatens to supplant Christ as your ultimate love, you put that to death. That is the cost of discipleship. That is what taking up your cross daily means. Let me pause for just a second. I think this message might seem like it pertains only to new believers or would-be believers, but there are two very important applications that I think apply to all who would claim to be a Christian, whether that's for one month or 70 years. First, this is a lifelong cost to take up your cross daily. I've spoken to men who claim to be Christian who've been in addiction for 40 years, and one of the first things we talk about is where Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, you cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, you gouge it out. You see, it doesn't matter that they called themselves Christians for 70 years. They need to be reminded this is a normal part of Christian life. I need to be reminded this is a normal part of Christian life. You need to be reminded this is a normal part of Christian life. The point is not that the hand or, eye, the, the, hand or the eye, a one-armed man can still murder, a one-eyed man can still lust. The point is that you must be radical in amputating whatever in your life causes you to take your eyes off of Jesus as your treasure. The world would tell this addict of 40 years, you're a victim. This is just an illness. You don't need to change anything about yourself. What nonsense. That avenue is not open to you if you claim to follow Christ. If you claim to follow Christ, he says that is not your identity any longer. Such were some of you, he says. You don't make peace with your sin. You are to fight it. 
In fact, you were to fight your sin so savagely and viciously that you would even be willing to cut off very good gifts like your hand or your eye. That may be the cost of discipleship in your context. So that's the first application to all believers, young and old. Here's the second. If you count the cost when you're thinking rightly, it will empower you on the day of trouble to choose rightly then. Let me give two very practical explanations of what I mean. Right now in the city of Chengdu in China, we have a Christian brother who is imprisoned. His name is Pastor Wang Yi, and he's the pastor of the Early Rain Covenant Church. And he's currently serving a nine-year prison sentence for preaching the gospel faithfully. And he had this to say on the necessity of daily counting the cost and fixing in our mind that it is worth paying. He says this, When I am being interrogated at the police station, I put myself in a spiritually safe situation by putting myself in a physically unsafe situation. When I am in the police station for the sake of spiritual safety, I say everything up front. I immediately arrive at the point of no retreat. Unless you beat me, unless you arrest me, we have nothing more to talk about. You see, if I discuss things with them little by little, if I prolong our conversation, I will be influenced by them. I will feel spiritually unsafe. They will get to my head through some roundabout ways. Then my spirit will weaken and many of their words and actions will affect me. And I don't want to be in that kind of spiritual danger. So in the very beginning, I clearly and directly address the point of conflict in the starkest possible terms. That way there's nothing more to discuss. I tell them at the very outset that their ideology is evil in the sight of God and then say, do what you want to me. And as soon as I say this, there's no turning back. I've discovered that this puts you in more physical danger, but it also comes with great benefit. It increases your spiritual safety. So this is what I do every time. So let me encourage you all, brothers and sisters, when you're facing persecution, when you're facing pressure because of your faith, don't give yourself too much wiggle room. Articulate the most controversial point as early as possible. And then say with Esther, if I die, I die. And I share his words in part here because we're commanded to remember our brothers and sisters in chains, but also because I believe God has given great wisdom to him in this. Remind yourself of the cost regularly so that you will be prepared when persecution comes, when temptation comes, when the fog of anxiety descends on you and you can barely see or think straight. His testimony helps us in the context of state persecution, but let me give you an example a little closer to home. Let's say you're in the gym and you see an attractive member of the opposite sex and your eyes are tempted to linger. Say this to yourself at the outset. It is written, I am not my own. It is written, I was bought with a price. I will therefore honor God with my body, including my eyes. This is not for me. I don't have a right to this person who is not my spouse. I follow Jesus and I am commanded to take up my cross and follow him. I will put to death, therefore, this and any lesser desire that sets itself up opposite Christ. You see how this works is if you think you are your own, if you think you have the right to something, if you don't realize the cost is daily putting to death pieces of your old nature and identity, you will linger, you will doubt, you will toy with your sin and with the lies of the world and eventually, in the case of Pastor Wang, the police will convince you of the wrongness of your position or in the case of the gym, your eyes will win out and covet that which doesn't belong to you. Let me pause here because I need a drink. Our main text is primarily about the cost of discipleship and counting the cost. And I think in order to weigh the cost of a thing, you don't just need to consider the cost, but also the value of what is gained. You see, I think for some of us, tragically, the greatest reason we don't count the cost or even recognize there is one is we fear that if we did count the cost, we fear we might conclude that the cost exceeds the gain. 
I don't think that's true, and I want to help you see that. So for the little bit of time we have left, I want to shift. I want to shift away from the costs of discipleship to the gains of discipleship. This is not a sales pitch. It would be a poor one if it were. And only those drawn by the Father come to him. You cannot buy your way into the kingdom. That's not what I'm arguing. Rather, the reason I want to focus in our final minutes on what is gained is because that is the language our Lord used in Mark 10, 28 through 30. Please read with me. In this passage, Peter said, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is acknowledging that there is a cost to follow him, but then he assures us that it is worth it. So in our final, members, uh, final moments, I'm going to uh, do the same. So let's look at three passages that have always been a great comfort to me and that have always helped me remember that the cost is worth it. The first is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I want to focus on two things. First, uh, what we find when we come to Christ is a treasure. And it is of such value that in, quote, in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. In his joy. Sells all that he has. Again, the point here is not to take a vow of poverty. The point is that when you come to Christ, you have found a treasure of unimaginable worth such that you would be willing, if you saw it rightly, to sell all that you have joyfully, joyfully. But what is the treasure you get? The second passage shows us, and it is found in the account of the woman at the well that Pastor Al preached on last week. We read in John 4, 13 through 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, the person of Jesus is our treasure. And he actually satisfies. A billion things promise you lasting satisfaction in this life. Professional success, family, fame, identity, culture, affection from friends, strength, intellect, having the right number of kids or the right number in your bank account. None of it lasts. Not one thing lasts. If you don't believe me, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was the richest, most powerful man on earth in his day and he did not deny himself anything. He looked to everything under the sun for satisfaction and not one thing gave it. Not one thing gave him lasting satisfaction, joy, or peace, but Jesus does. And that is what you gain. You get to stop the rat race. You get to stop asking, what is the meaning of life? You get to stop asking, where can I find peace and joy and rest? Jesus says, you'll find it in me. Jesus is not a way to get to your treasure. He is not a butler who brings you cars or homes or wealth or gold. He is the gold. He is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. Psalm 16 proclaims of Jesus that he is our inheritance and therefore our inheritance is good. In his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The treasure is Jesus and he is worth whatever the cost ends up being. This message was difficult to write because on one hand the topic is vast. Entire books have been written on what scripture has to say about the cost of discipleship. But I want to care for those that God has brought here this morning because it's not an accident. And so I want to end with four practical messages to four different groups of people takeaways from the passage that we've gone through. The first group is the longtime believer who has never counted the cost. 
And if you're honest with yourself, you're not sure there is one. Please don't skip past today's message. Your Lord, the one you say is master of your life, has urged you to consider the cost first for a reason. It is so that your tower will be finished, so that you won't be found to be shallow soil. I would urge you to count that cost so that you won't be like Demas. In Colossians 4.14 and Philemon, we see Demas is a, quote, fellow worker and close friend of Paul. But by 2 Timothy 4.10, we read, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. I want you to count the cost now so that you will not be like Demas. If you don't fix in your mind now that the cost is putting to death desire for the world and its attractions, then I fear you will endure but for a little time and will eventually be drawn away. So please hear the words of our Lord. Count the cost now. And if you think, well, only a fool would look back, consider Lot's wife. You are not more naturally righteous than she. I'm not more naturally righteous than she. She looked back longingly at a city that was literally being consumed by fire and brimstone. She did not count the cost at the outset. She longed for pieces of her old life despite the fact that it was literally being consumed by fire and that longing destroyed her. Count the cost now so that you don't make the same mistake. The second group is those who would call themselves Christians, but they are operating under the mistaken belief that they can accept Christ on their terms. They think they can accept Jesus as Savior, but not Master. They think they can accept His help to save them from condemnation. But if He dares suggest that they change any part of their lives, they say, how dare you? You don't know my story. This group might not say it so bluntly, but they think they can come to Jesus on their terms with their conditions. You cannot. Jesus has said there is a cost. And that cost is you must pick up your cross daily and follow after him. The cost is that you are no longer your own. You don't come to Jesus with conditions. You come to him on his terms or you don't come at all. What I would say to you is accept his terms. What you gain is far greater than anything he tells you to let go of. At this point, someone might say, Jonathan, Jesus puts no conditions on coming to him. You're wrong. He says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He demands that you believe, repent, and follow in his footsteps. And he makes that demand to all. All are commanded to believe, repent, and follow Jesus. To every person on earth, he says, come to me. But you are wrong if you think you can come to him on your terms and not the terms that Jesus has laid out, repentance and faith. The third group are those who are not believers and you know it. First, I'm glad you're here and hope you will stay. We are glad you're here. And, I, and this is, you need the word. We all need the word. And my takeaway for you would be similar. Jesus says in John 14, 6, none come to the Father save through me. And he further says in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. To you, I would give the same message that Jesus gave. Repent, repent and follow Jesus. That's it. Your response might be, Jonathan, you just spent an hour talking about how there is a cost to discipleship and now you're saying I can just repent and follow Jesus. Yes, both are true. I like the way the Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond said it. He said, the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. The annual subscription is everything. If you find, follow Jesus, you will find there is nothing he cannot ask of you, but he will also give you the strength to do it but the entrance fee is free for us. It costs Jesus, but for us. Jesus bids you to repent and follow him. To all believers and non-believers who hear the annual subscription is everything, I would ask you to consider what you gain. You gain Jesus. So finally, to the last group, it's similar. The last group is the disciple, old or brand new, who has counted the cost who daily continues to do so, who daily picks up their cross and follows after Jesus, not perfectly, none of us do it perfectly, but you keep putting one foot in front of the other and praying, God, help me. Please be glorified in my life today. Please help me love you more today. To that group, I would say, endure. Keep pressing on. 
continue to behold your Lord and run with endurance the race set before you, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Do not grow weary. We are here for such a little time. Endure till the end so that you may say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Live your life now in such a way that on that day, the words you hear are well done, good and faithful servant, enter unto rest. On the last day, your joy will be full, not because you escaped hell, but because it's your wedding day. Right now, we as Christ's church are betrothed. If you are married, do you remember the weeks and months leading up to your wedding day? That is the time period we're in. It's an already and not yet type of joy. Already joy because we're betrothed. Just instead of a wedding band, we have the Holy Spirit. And we await with eager expectation the actual day. Now we see Jesus dimly, only in part. Then we shall see him in whole. But the fullness is coming. And I think the Phil Wickham song said it very well. It said, when we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and will sing, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're beautiful. We have the pearl of great price. His name is Jesus. In his presence there is fullness of joy and he is worth the cost. He is so worth the cost. And on the wedding day, I have full confidence that every single disciple will enjoy proclaim that in light of what they have gained, they will say, I sacrificed nothing. Compared to what I've gained in Christ, I sacrificed nothing. It cost me nothing. Let's pray. Father, we are so given to distraction. There is such fog. We don't see you rightly. Help us. Help us to see you rightly. Help us to love you rightly and value you rightly. Let us not be drawn back to the things that once fascinated us, like Lot's wife. Help us. Help us to every day be more like Christ, knowing when we fail there is grace, but then to pick ourselves up and continue following in the strength you give. Please, God, be glorified in this word and in each of us as we go about this week. Would you be glorified? Advance your kingdom, your mission, and your church, and let us keep our eyes fixed on you and delight knowing that you are our treasure and nothing else compares. We love you. Forgive us where we failed you. It's in your son's name. Amen.